Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Stephen M. R. Covey. Stephen M. R. Covey is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal number one best-selling author of The Speed of Trust. He is the former CEO of Covey Leadership Center and the author of the new book, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others. I really enjoyed this conversation. First and foremost, because Stephen has shown through his own leadership that trust can play a pivotal role in leading an organization to superior performance. Most especially, though, his humility with which he shares so many stories of incredible leaders focusing on what they have done to build trust and inspire their teams. As Stephen says in the conversation and in the book, while in many instances, some of our language has changed, we are still operating primarily in a command and control structure in most of our organizations. And that's not the way to lead organizations forward. So Stephen shares examples and frameworks on how we can become trust and inspire leaders. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure you will too. And keep your comments coming. I enjoy reading those. Mahan at mahantavikoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy those voice messages. Don't forget to follow the podcast, Tuesday Conversations with Magnificent Changemakers from the Greater Washington, D.C., DMV region, and Thursday Conversations with brilliant global thought leaders like Stephen. Now, here's my conversation with Stephen M. R. Covey. Stephen M. R. Covey, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thank you, Mahan. I'm also delighted to connect with you for Partnering Leadership. So what a treat. Thank you. Stephen, I can't wait to talk about trust and inspire how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. Having read your book, Speed of Trust in 2006, Smart Trust in 2012, you own trust and trust is a critical part of leadership. But before we get to that, would love to know about your upbringing as the son of a person that became transformative to personal and organizational development. What was your upbringing like, Stephen? It was amazing. I feel very fortunate, very blessed to have had a great father and a great mother. And they were a wonderful team together. My father is Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And my mother, while she was not as prominently known as him, was every much his equal, every bit. She's an extraordinary lady and person. I will say this, that I like to uh, joke around that us kids, because there was nine of us, Mahan, so we had a big family. <laughs> the nine of us, we were 
the first guinea pigs for my father's ideas. <laughs> he'd first test them out on us. And then he'd try them out in the marketplace and, and not really in that sense, but yes, in the sense that he was teaching these principles in the home as well as with organizations. And because they're principles, they apply everywhere. So what a great honor that was. Maybe the one little story, I'll give a condensed version of it that I'll share was, and I mentioned this in this Trust and Inspire book, is the story my father tells in, in Seven Habits called Green and Clean, where he's trying to teach his young son how to take care of the lawn, the yard. This is in the days before automatic sprinklers. So it was a big deal to do it. And, <laughs> and, and Mahan, I'm that green and clean kid. <laughs> I was only seven years old. So you can't expect too much of a seven-year-old, right? But a long story made short is my father was trying to teach um, the kids responsibility, stewardship, uh, commitment, initiative, so we all took on jobs and my job was to take care of the lawn. We had a huge lawn, a lot of grass. And he said, look, I only care about two things. I want the lawn to be green and I want it to be clean. And he taught me what green looked like and taught me how to get it green, how you had to water it and turn the sprinklers on. And he goes, but how you do it is up to you. He delegated the result, not the method. He said, if you want, you can turn the sprinklers on. That's what I would do but you could use hoses or buckets or spit all day long, <laughs> as long as it's green and clean. And then he taught me what clean looked like. We cleaned up part of the yard and compared. Again, this sounds so elementary, but I was seven years old. So he needed to kind of train me. So he clarified expectations, but then we agreed to a process of accountability of where I would judge myself. I would evaluate myself against the standard of green and clean. And the agreement was that we'd walk around the yard once a week and I would judge myself and tell him how I'm doing. So that was kind of it. Two weeks of training. He turns it over to me in the middle of the summer after all this training. And Mahan, I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing on Saturday, nothing Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We're into Wednesday. It's been five days. It's the middle of the summer. It's scorching hot. The lawn is turning yellow by the day. We had a big neighborhood barbecue over the weekend and there's garbage strewn throughout the entire yard. It was anything but green and clean. And my dad later said that he was just this close, just, just about to go back and just take over the job or micromanage me, hover over and just tell me what to do. But he didn't. He stayed with it. And he said he went to the agreement that we would walk the yard once a week and I would tell him how we're doing. I would judge myself against the standard of green and clean. So we began to walk the yard and I could see this is not green and it's not clean. In fact, it's yellow <laughs> and it's messy. And I began to break down and cry. And I said, dad, this is just so hard. And he kind of said, well, what's hard, son? You haven't done one single thing yet. <laughs> but what was hard was me learning to take responsibility, to take initiative, to own this. And I said, well, will you help me, dad? He said, what was our agreement? I said, well, you told me that you'd help me if you have time. That's right. Do you have time, dad? I've got time. So I ran into the house. I came out with two garbage sacks. I took one of them. I gave him one of them. And then I started to direct him. I said, dad, will you go over and pick up that garbage over there on the side? Because that makes me want to vomit. <laughs> he says, look, I'll, I'm your helper. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It was at that moment, Mahan, I realized, look at this. This is my job. And I'm directing my dad. He's my helper. 
he's doing what I'm asking him to do to help go pick up this garbage. It was at that moment I realized this is my job. I own this. And I took responsibility from that day forward. And the lawn, it was green <laughs> and it was clean the whole rest of the summer and many summers beyond that. Now, what's interesting is my, my father for years would use this to illustrate the idea of a win-win performance agreement. But I was a seven-year-old boy. <laughs> I didn't know what those terms meant. But here's what I did know as a seven-year-old. It was very simple. I felt trusted. Yes. I felt my father trusted me and I didn't want to let him down. And I rose vacation. I performed. I did the job. And so for my father, he got the result, but he grew the child. And growing the child actually mattered more to him than even the result. And it was just amazing. I tell you this story because it really was my firsthand experience with a trust and inspire leader. Someone who trusted me, inspired me, brought out the best in me, helped me develop my talent, my, my potential, and helped me see it myself. I didn't know I had this in me. He helped me come to see it. And it really was my first experience with Trust and Inspire. He was a Trust and Inspire parent as well as a Trust and Inspire thought leader and leader. And that was my experience, my story. And that helped shape how I viewed life and how I viewed this book, that this is the kind of leadership we need today. Trust and Inspire, like my father was with me. We all respond to that kind of leadership. And it would have been really easy to kind of go into command and control, but he just stayed with, it's in you. Let's stay with the agreement. And it came out of me. And he got the result and he raised the child. Stephen, I love this story. And we could spend hours just talking about this story because even though you were a seven-year-old child, this can be very instructive for leaders with respect to whether it's communicating an outcome. I'm a big fan of objectives and key results. John Doerr popularized them. Sure. And a lot of leaders don't communicate the outcomes clearly and then support their team members to get there or the willingness to allow people to make mistakes and be there for them. So there is so much in terms of leadership that just can come from this story beyond the trust factor. It's the relationship that it, uh, is established there. And it's not just a seven-year-old child. If leaders reflect just on this story and see how they can create more of an environment similar to this in their teams, they will be much better off as a result of it. I love that you said that because I agree completely. That's why I put it in the book that is not just a parent-child. This is an approach to leadership that's really profound and effective. And it has all the things you talked about, the importance of delegating outcomes, results, not dictating methods. Because the moment we dictate methods, then we become responsible for results, not the person. But when we delegate the outcomes, the results, they become responsible. And then like you say, you give people the chance to learn, to fail, to try their own thing. And yeah, there's a risk in doing it, but there's also maybe a greater return. Maybe they do it better than you ever could have. Maybe they grow and develop capabilities along the way. And also the importance of a relationship and how that changes everything. Also the importance of an agreement with expectations and accountability. And the whole point is, hey, if this kind of approach could work with a seven-year-old, 
Maybe it could work with a 27-year-old or a 47-year-old or a 67-year-old because it's an approach to leadership that is highly relevant for our times. So it's not just a simple uh, parent-child task. It's really an approach to leadership that is maybe more relevant than ever before today. It is a great approach to leadership. And I love the quote you have early on in your book from Eleanor Roosevelt. A good leader inspires people to have confidence in the leader. A great leader inspires people to have confidence in themselves. So this was your dad's way of also building confidence in you and the mindset that leaders need to have in guiding their teams. But before we go on further, I also uh, want to acknowledge the fact that you mentioned you've dedicated the book both to your dad and to your mom and the significant role your mom played, including how the last 12 years of her life, having been wheelchair bound after a surgery went bad, she continued to serve as an inspiration to you too. So how did your mom impact your view on leadership and trusting relationships, Stephen? Profoundly equal to my father. And she was one who was always fiercely loyal to her children. But more than anything, she made you feel like you could do this. She made you feel like a million bucks and gave you a sense of confidence. But also, she affirmed so well and helped you believe that you could do anything. So she saw your potential. And she communicated your potential such that you could see it yourself. I mean, she saw it in me and helped me see it in myself. Then she gave me the confidence that I could do this, to take some risks, and that it was okay if I made some mistakes because I could do this. And to have someone in your corner (laughs) that was your advocate, your champion, was extraordinary. But then also, she herself was such a model. She was resilient. And it's one thing to talk about these principles when everything is going great. But my mother's greatest moments were after this surgery went awry. And now she's in a wheelchair and she thought she'd get out of the wheelchair, but she didn't. And the last 12 years of her life in this wheelchair, and it didn't change her at all. She remained the most enthusiastic, positive, upbeat person. She didn't slow down. She got one of these jazzies and she just drove it around everywhere. She'd run people over accidentally sometimes. And, <laughs> and you had to watch your feet. And we actually had an elevator in my home that we put in because we were building the home. We put in so that my mom could go up and down to where we would have different activities. And to this day, there's all these on the walls of the elevator there are markings. There's marks everywhere, scuff marks of how she ran the wheelchair into the elevator. And I love it today because she passed away two years ago. And I see these marks and I reminded of my mom and how nothing slowed her down. Nothing stopped her. She would do things. She would go to movies. She'd go to lunches and dinners and events and activities. It was discouraging at first, but then she just adapted to it and just said, I'm going to continue to in my life. So she's a great example of really of what my dad taught of proactivity, of choosing your response, even when it's a difficult circumstance. And I'm a product equally of my mother and father, not just biologically, but in terms of the lessons 
the leadership, the insights I've gained from them both. You had all of these leadership lessons growing up, ended up going to Harvard Business School. Why did you decide to join your dad? And just as a reference point, this is before or right around the time seven habits was going to come out. So it's not as if your dad was running this big company that you decided out of Harvard Business School, I want to go work with my dad. Yeah. The seven habits had not come out yet. It was going to come out in about six months. But Mahan, I knew that it was going to come out and I knew the seven habits was going to resonate with people. The reason I say that is because we'd actually, my dad had been working on it and teaching it for about 10 years before the book came out. The book was kind of the last thing and it's almost backwards today. People usually lead with their book and then everything else follows, but it was almost the other way around and, and I'd seen how people responded to it. And so I really was very confident that this book is going to connect. It's going to resonate with people and it's going to work. And I thought that was going to be an exciting ride. But I had other opportunities. I had an opportunity on Wall Street. That's pretty exciting. It's heady stuff. And, and I had a real estate development company, Trammell Crow Company, a great organization that I'd done work with them. I was employed by them before business school. They wanted me back. And that was exciting. But I'll never forget, there's three opportunities, and it kind of came down between the Trammell Crow real estate development and my father's company, Cavaliership Center, which was really a small company. I think maybe there was two dozen people. I remember my father asking me, because he knew me really well, and he knew what excited me and what a sense of purpose I had in my life. He said, well, as you consider this choice, because I just want you to ask you this question. Do you want to build buildings or do you want to build people? <laughs> and for me, it was building people because he kind of knew that. And look, I'm not against building buildings. That's, that could be someone else's purpose. And you can do that really well. And in the process, also build people. So that was a good thing too. But for me, my why, my purpose was more tied to building people as my first in primary focus. And he kind of knew that and, and kind of framing it that way, it became clear of what I'm going to take this leap because it was more of a leap. The trauma crow was very established and strong. And this was more of a leap. Who knows what happens here? But I thought it would also be fun and exciting. It clearly tapped into my sense of mission and purpose and contribution. So I jumped at that and sure enough, the seven habits had the impact that I thought it would. And it really impacted people. And I was involved in kind of building that business, growing the business, became the CEO, helped figure out a business model so that we could do things and succeed. We were so mission-driven, Mahan, as you might imagine how this is and in, with some of your prior work, we were so mission-driven around this idea of uh, principle-centered leadership and the impact of the seven habits could have that we tried to do everything all at once. <laughs> We tried to do this in communities, in schools, and in every, personally, organizationally. There's nothing wrong with that idea, except for you can't do everything at once when you're just trying to establish yourself as a business. So we were running out of cash, our, our margins were low. So we had to kind of adapt a mantra. If there's no margin, there's no mission. <laughs> no margin, no mission. That helped us kind of take a business approach to this with the idea that if we can run this like a business, 
then we can really have a powerful and expansive mission. But if we don't run this like a business, then we won't have the means to, to fulfill our mission. But we have to kind of discipline ourselves. Back to Jim Collins' idea. This is before Jim wrote Good to, Good to Great. But the idea of disciplined thinking, we had to have a margin to have a mission. And that was my contribution, I feel, to help build the business model and figure out how to do that so that we could then impact people all around the world, which we ultimately did. That is really important, Stephen, whether it is in the people development business that, as you mentioned, I have a lot of experience in. A lot of times people are so passionate about people development that they forget that if they don't have a margin and if they don't maintain the business, they're not going to be around to develop the people. Or many of the nonprofits I've been involved with, while they are not in the business of making a profit, they are so purpose-driven that they forget that they need to make the finances work to achieve that purpose. So the business side is really important. And you were able to take over, grow the Covey Leadership Center. At a certain point, though, you decided to merge with Franklin Quest, and that caused some difficulties. Mergers are really difficult anyway, taking two cultures, bringing them together. But you were an organization promoting good leadership principles. Now you had brought the Franklin Quest people together with the Covey folks. How did that work out for you, Stephen? Well, it has worked out great, but initially it was really difficult to be open about it. Not because they weren't two great companies. Maybe it's because both companies were so strong and good and they had their own methodologies. own approaches and merging content companies, leadership companies, because Franklin Quest was doing the time management, but they had a leadership approach to time management. We were doing leadership development. So we, we came at it from different angles, different approaches, but people feel pretty dogmatic about their approach. And so that was the challenge. We had great people from both organizations, great values, and great approaches, just night and day different starting points of almost every aspect of it, of how to build the business, how to run it, the compensation, the whole of philosophies, and yet the same direction of where we tried to go. So it was just difficult initially. And we struggled. It kind of was divided into camps, the Covey camp, the Franklin camp, kind of a we, they. And that often happens in mergers, like you said. I like to say that Trust is usually the first casualty of most mergers. (laughs) And that happened here. And it was just kind of divided down party lines, if you will, by company lines. And then what happened is we just had to consciously say, let's apply our own principles to ourselves. It's human nature that we have two different groups and we kind of tend to trust those who we're like, but we need to extend trust to each other. We need to build this trust intentionally. We'd really done nothing to lose the trust, but because we had been arch competitors, we had to overcome the inherent kind of distrust that had been built in. So once we became aware of this, that the need to build trust on purpose, then that is when everything began to change. And we really behaved our way into greater trust. And we built it with each other. Then it went from a Covey side to a Franklin side to a Franklin Covey side, where we were one and the same. 
And that changed everything. So we've had a great ride. But the first couple of years, it was difficult. But I'll tell you what, for me personally, this was a crucible because I was at the epicenter of this. I literally had half the people that trusted me and half that didn't. And yet I always felt like this is my strength, trust. But now half the people don't trust me. And I had to kind of learn how to build and in some cases rebuild the trust. It, it's not that I'd done things to lose it, but it wasn't there. But because of that, I became clear. I found my purpose. I found my voice emerging out of this crucible of seeing how we had low trust, but we went from low trust to high trust and how everything changed. Every dimension and aspect of the business the economics of the business changed, but also the energy, the joy, the culture, the wellness, the well-being changed. And I came out of that saying, well, trust changes everything, both financially, but also from a leadership perspective. And also that trust is movable. It's learnable. You can build it on purpose. And I said, look, a lot of stuff has been out there on trust, but it's usually too simplistic. On one end, kind of like trust everyone, kind of a Pollyannish or too academic, not practical enough. And I felt like there's an opportunity to make a compelling case for why trust matters and how to build it. And from that came the speed of trust. And the speed of trust was far better because I'd been on both sides of the equation. Yes, I'd built high trust at Covey Leadership Center, but I'd also had distrust. And I'd been where people didn't trust me. And I had to learn how to take that and convert it into a high trust and build high trust when people didn't trust me. And had I not had that experience, I wouldn't have been as relatable. I wouldn't have been as empathic. And I wouldn't have been as, hopefully, as had the connections that we ended up having. So it turned into a huge blessing in disguise for me personally, but also for our company, we went to a different level because we appreciated it more, having had to fight for it and earn it together. To me, Stephen, that adds a lot of credibility to your content and writing about trust in that on one end, there need to be frameworks of how people can uh, have greater trust in their teams, organizations. However, that in your case is married with a painful experience of trying to bring two groups together because the reality of leading is oftentimes very different than the hypothetical principles that sometimes people write about. So from my perspective, that adds a lot more credibility to the fact that you've been through the crucible and you've had to do this yourself. Having Covey in your last name having to bring along the Franklin Quest people to no longer say, hey, we are a different party. You are not one of us. You're right. This is a approach that's forged from practice, not just from theory. Because sometimes the theory doesn't hold up in the real life application and having to kind of pay the price and earn it and re-earn it was very significant. Also, I'll say this. Here's one last piece I'll add. I chose and I've chosen to be open and vulnerable on this. In, in my book, The Speed of Trust, I lead off with this story. And I had some people push back and say, whoa, wait a minute, Stephen. If you're going to be seen as an expert on trust, 
to start off your book talking about how half the people didn't trust you. That's not a good way to start off. And I said, but it's real. It's authentic. And I'm going to look, the, I, I do come out in a good place. I just didn't start in a good place. And I had to learn this. I had to go through these lessons. And the reality is half the people didn't trust me. And I had to learn to gain their trust. I'd rather tell the story openly and honestly and be vulnerable about it because I think people will relate to that. But also, I think in the long run, it will actually make me more credible because I'm a human being. I'm, a, I'm authentic. And I'm not trying to act like I've never had any trust issues. So I chose to put it in against some advice of people that said, don't do that. And most people have told me that I had them at the story, <laughs> that my inclusion of that story showing authenticity and vulnerability, even me not looking so good, helped build my own trust with them, with them as a reader, because I wasn't trying to put on airs or put on a front and be something that there was not. So yeah, I learned a lot from that, including around authenticity, around vulnerability, and also that this is always a journey. Trust is always a journey. And that brings me to where I'm, I'm at now with this trust and inspire. It's kind of now trying to apply this at the leadership level and adding to it the inspiration that is so needed in our world today. Stephen, I'm glad you included and shared that story. To your point, it's that level of vulnerability and what you say, intimacy, intimacy, that is essential for leaders to be able to create that trust and inspire people. Now, you mentioned that the world has changed, but our leadership styles haven't. Why hasn't leadership changed along with it? It's changed a little, but just not enough. And we've given a lot of lip service to where we need to go, but we're still not there in practice. I think it's because we're so immersed in this old model, and I call the old model command and control, but it's kind of the traditional leadership model, the management model. And what's happened is we've become better at it, more advanced, more sophisticated. So we've moved from a, an authoritarian command and control to an enlightened command and control. And it is better. And we brought things into it, including trustworthiness, which is a good thing, but different than trusting. And we brought into it things like emotional intelligence and strengths and even mission, a lot of good things. But our paradigm of how we view people and how we view leadership is still somewhat limited in the old model, constrained by more of a traditional model that is a relic of the industrial age. So we just haven't quite kept pace with this changing world with our leadership style. And I think it's because we're so immersed in the old model. I think today, our leadership style is like modern day bloodletting. <laughs> and and, and, the, and the, the premise is, you, look, you study the history of bloodletting, it started with the Egyptians some 3,000 years ago, but it persisted for almost 3,000 years and was effectively disproven in the 1600s with germ theory and other things that says, no, this is a bad way of healing. And yet the practice persisted for another 250 plus years. Even though it's kind of proven not to work, we knew better, but we kept doing it. I think it's some of the things happen today. We kind of know command and control doesn't work. And yet it still remains a prevailing practice 
in most organizations and most industries, with some exceptions. So I see it as kind of the idea is that old paradigms can live on <laughs> indefinitely and even beyond their usefulness. And I think that we still have the old model of command and control leadership still living on. I think another reality is that is the idea that fish discover water last. And we're so immersed in, in a command and control world. It's in our language. Think about it. Span of control, chain of command, subordinates, recruitment, rank and file. These are all military terms from the old model of industrial age. It's in our systems and our structures. We have performance rankings and you got to rate people, high potentials, and therefore those that aren't. And it's in systems and structures and language and processes. And we're like fish that discover water last. We're just immersed in it. We're not even fully aware of how much it's dominating our thinking. And also, finally, just this idea that to know and not to do is not to know. <laughs> so we kind of, it's one thing to say, yes, we need to shift our leadership style. And most everyone would agree, but it's another thing to actually do it. Because if we're not doing it, then we don't really know it. Because I make the argument kind of that you're bringing up that don't we already know this? <laughs> and the answer is yes, we do, but we're not doing it. We're not practicing. 90% of organizations today are still in operating in some level of command and control. It's usually a more enlightened version of it, but it's still the prevailing norm. So we've got to catch our leadership up to this new world of work. And I'm calling it trust and inspire in contrast to command and control. And so we're clear what we need to move from. We've got to become more clear what we need to move toward. Trust and inspire. My father was a trust and inspire leader. My mother, we've all had trust and inspire leaders. I bet our listeners have had people in your life as a listener, someone who believed in you, who had confidence in you. Maybe they believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And they extended trust to you. They inspired you. I, mean, I just would ask our listeners, when you had someone like that, maybe it's a parent or a family member or a friend or a coach or someone at work, someone who believed in you, had confidence in you, help you come to believe in yourself. You know, what did that do to you? And how did you respond to that? Did you need to be managed and supervised? Or did it literally unleash you and bring out the best in you and you rose to the occasion and you tried to live up to it and return the trust that you were given and became your best self? I guess it's the latter, not the former. And so we all kind of know it. We've all had it. So isn't that what we want? And that certainly is what others want. What if we could become that kind of person for others? That's the idea of trust and inspire. We all know this. It's just a matter of helping us get there. I get inspired thinking about the leader I had, Stephen, that made me feel that way. And I'm sure the same is the case with all the listeners. The challenge is for all of us both to acknowledge that and then to do the kinds of things it takes for us to be trust and inspire leaders. One of the things you mentioned is the fundamental beliefs we have make a big difference. And the first one is, I believe people have greatness in them. How best can we assess and approach our fundamental beliefs? Because without changing those beliefs, we are not effectively going to change our approach Absolutely. It starts with those beliefs because those beliefs collectively 
comprise a mindset, a paradigm, right? And the fastest way to change behavior is to change your paradigm. Change how you see the world, your mental map, your model. So if we're operating with a limited paradigm about how we see people or leadership, then it's hard to then have integrity and act outside of that paradigm. So it's hard to change the behavior. If we see people as, yeah, some people have greatness, but most don't. Some do. Our high potentials do, but most people don't. And it's hard to truly focus on unleashing people when you don't see the greatness in people. But when you start with the paradigm of the fundamental belief, I believe that people have greatness inside of them, not just the high potentials, but everyone. That everyone is potentially a high potential. I see that greatness. I see that the power is in the people. And it's like a gardener. I love that metaphor of a garden. That you're a gardener as a leader. You're creating the conditions for the seed to, to, to flourish. And so the power is in the seed, not in the gardener. The power is in the people, not in the leader. You're creating the conditions for that seed, the people, to flourish. So it starts with that paradigm. So I would just say, we have to become self-aware and really ask, do I have this belief, not just about some, but about everyone? Now, people might be at different stages of that greatness of where they're at, but I believe there's greatness inside of people. Then I always have a second half to the belief, which is, does my practice align with that belief? Because if I believe that people have greatness inside of them, then my job as a leader is to unleash their potential, not to try to contain or control them. And, and so I want to make sure that my style is matched with my intent, that my actions are matched with my belief. And sometimes maybe the issue is the belief that I don't believe people have greatness. More often, the issue is that our styles get in the way of our intent, our actions get in the way of belief where yeah, I think people have greatness, but I'm still operating on the premise that only some do. I've fallen into the systems and structures trap of breaking high potentials and everybody else as not having that and falling prey to that. And another belief that people are whole people, body, heart, mind, spirit, not just economic beings where they're just working for paycheck. So if I buy that they're whole people, my job as a leader is to inspire, not merely motivate. If people were just economic, then motivation's enough. Carrot and stick. Command and control is really good at. Carrot and stick rewards, right? Does it work? Sure, motivates people to get more rewards. I think Daniel Pink said that. But if people are whole people, they want to be inspired. That's internal, intrinsic. Motivation is external, extrinsic. It's inside of people. Like light the fire within. And why? Because they're a whole person. They bring their whole selves to work. Again, you're looking at both the belief of how you see people and then your practice, your action of how you operate as a leader. Are you aligned? Is your style aligned with your intent? Is your practice aligned with your belief? So that's a good way to assess this. And you do it about people and about leadership. Do you believe there's enough for everyone, an abundance mentality, so that you elevate caring above competing but if you have a scarcity mentality that there's only enough for some, if someone's getting credit and others aren't, if they're at a scarcity mentality, then it's hard to really elevate caring above competing because, hey, I got to compete and get mine. 
<laughs> so it's, it starts with the paradigm. The way you shift the behaviors is shift the paradigm. And that's what we try to do is try to go through the fundamental beliefs of a trust-inspired leader so we get a more complete, more accurate, more relevant paradigm or map of how to view people and how to view leadership. Part of what you say, Stephen, is that becoming inspiring is something we can develop. It's not something that leaders have. You separate and differentiate between being inspiring and being charismatic. Absolutely. That, this is one of the big ideas in the book is that inspiring others is a learnable skill. It's not just for the charismatic. Because too often we've conflated charisma and inspiration and say, well, gosh, to inspire, I got to be charismatic and that's just not me. But no, you separate them. I'll bet that you're like me, Mahan. I know people who might be quite charismatic, but who aren't necessarily inspiring. I know other people who no one would describe as charismatic, but who are remarkably inspiring because of who they are and how they lead and the caring and the connection they establish. I'm thinking of a teacher right now that just the, the love, the care is so strong. They inspire people, but no one would describe this person as a charismatic person per se. So separate them. Inspiring others is learnable. Everyone can inspire because we inspire when we connect with people through caring and belonging. And we inspire when we connect to purpose, to meaning, to contribution, what you're all about. That inspires to make those connections, connection. And so inspiring others is learnable. I also think inspiration is a whole nother frontier of leadership. I think it's where leadership is going today, Mahan, if you think about it. The Holy Grail for years has been engagement. And it still is vital. And it is still part of the Holy Grail. I'm just saying there's another frontier beyond engagement, and that's inspiration. And there's data from Bain and company that shows that inspired employees are even more productive than engaged employees. Also, you'll have greater well-being. So there's another frontier. Now, we won't get to inspiration without going through engagement. So we, we can keep all our engagement efforts. I'm not saying discard them. No, that's still on the way to inspiration and, and it's vital. So I'm not denigrating in, in engagement. I'm just adding another frontier of inspiration and the idea that everyone can inspire. It's one of our stewardships as a leader to inspire the people we lead. Stephen, as I was reading this and reflecting on it, I reflected back on the fact that the most inspiring leader I had would arguably be one of the least charismatic people. When you would meet him, you wouldn't come out of the meeting and say, wow, what a charismatic person. And as I was reflecting on it, charisma is reflective of the individual. Inspiring, he inspired me to have greater belief in myself. So through his inspiration, he gave more energy and power to the people he was leading. So one is self-directed, that charisma. The person is the center of the room. The other one is other-directed, that inspiration. That's beautiful, Mahan. That's exactly it. 
And that's why everyone can inspire because everyone can focus on serving others, helping others, caring for others, creating a sense of belonging for other people. It's outward oriented. This is what Francis Fry and Ann Morris in their book Unleashed, you know, they, they make the point leadership is not about you. It's about them. And inspiring others is not about you. It's about them, but others. You're precisely right. That's why it's learnable because we can all look outward and, and all focus on service above self-interest. And I love the Martin Luther King Jr. quote where he said, everyone has the potential for greatness, not for fame, but for greatness because greatness is based upon service. It's looking out, looking at others and inspiring others is when we look at them. And so my mantra for this is seek to bless, not to impress. When I'm trying to impress people, then it's about me. How am I coming across? Are they impressed with me? I'm thinking about me. I mean mine. I'm trying to impress. But instead, my mindset is, I'm trying to bless. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to add value. trying to serve. It's always about them. So service above self-interest is what stewardship is really about. And we can all achieve that. We can achieve greatness because of that. Stephen, you already mentioned a couple of the elements that you categorize under stewardship. And the three stewardships, you start out with modeling, which I think is critical. Now, what I found interesting is you combining humility and courage. How do humility and courage interplay in modeling? Yes. The broader point of modeling is the whole idea that you model the values, you model the behavior, and leaders go first. So that's the broader idea. But then I highlighted key virtues that have disproportionate value being modeled today in our world. And I put them in pairs. And you named one of the pairs. There's three pairs. One of them is humility and courage. And they seem almost like opposites. And yet they're interconnected. It takes enormous courage to be humble. Because too often, humility could be perceived in our world today as weak, soft. That's why I'm saying, ah, it actually takes courage to be humble. It'd almost be easier to just move ahead with bravado and hubris and self-serving courage instead of service-oriented courage. And then choosing to be humbled and to be to recognize that there's principles out there and that we're just trying to navigate and align with principles that's bigger than us. And that takes humility. And when people also operate on the premise of they start with humility, that there are principles, they know this, that when they align with principles, that's where the greatest impact is had. So they can be courageous about saying, I know as we align around principles of personal and human effectiveness and organizational effectiveness, that this is going to work. That gives me courage because I'm aligning around principles, but it took humility to start. So they're beautifully integrated. And Jim Collins had his own way of doing this in good to great. 
He said the level five leader, what his description of the ultimate leader had that paradoxical combination of deep personal humility and intense professional will. My description of intense professional will is courage. So this is a powerful combination that really works well together. And some leaders are maybe stronger on one. I've seen plenty of leaders high on courage, but needing more humility. And occasionally you might see someone that's very humble, that could use more courage and could confront reality, talk straight, but they're so humble that maybe they focus on demonstrating respect, but not enough on talking straight. You need to do both in our world today. That's a powerful combination. So that's the kind of thing we need to model the kind of attributes, the kind of virtues that are going to really inspire people today. And, and I also go into authenticity and vulnerability, empathy and performance. That's another paradoxical combination, that last one. They work beautifully together as well as independently. They work beautifully together. And that modeling had me reflecting. And I especially love, you can't talk your way out of a problem you behaved your way into. It's really important for all of us as leaders to reflect on that when we are thinking about modeling. So you go through that, you have self-assessments people can fill out. I want to touch on becoming more trusting also, Stephen. You mentioned clarifying expectations and practicing accountability as playing a role in trust. There's a lot of leaders when I have conversations with them, they keep referring to trust but verify. And they come up with reasons why in their industry, their organization, their environments, they can't really trust people. We are in financial services. We are in government. We are filling the blank. And then the excuse why this all sounds great, but we can't let go of this command and control style. So when it comes to trust, how can leaders become more trusting? Yes. See, I think this is critical. And the stewardship, I'm describing the stewardship as trusting. Because I make this point that you could have two trustworthy people working together and no trust between them, even though they're both trustworthy, if neither person is willing to extend trust to the other. We got to be trusting as well as trustworthy. See, trustworthy, we earn that. Trusting, we give that. And as leaders, we've got to become more trusting. I've worked with organizations all around the world. I find the bigger challenge in creating trust is in most organizations, not without exception, there are plenty of exceptions, but in most organizations, the bigger challenge is not a lack of trustworthiness. It's more a lack of trusting. And leaders aren't trusting enough. The reason I highlighted clarify expectations, practice accountability, is I'm trying to say you can extend trust to other people in a way that makes sense, where it's not a one-size-fits-all, where you use good judgment. You meet people where, where they're at. You create the agreement together, like my father did with me in green and clean. He was trusting me, but not just blindly to say, take care of the yard. He trained me. We built an agreement. We had expectations green and clean. We had accountability. Once a week, we'd walk around and I'd judge myself against that standard and tell him how we're doing. So that enables us to get the job done 
but in a way that grows the people. Too often, people are afraid if they trust others that they won't get the job done, or they try to dictate the methods, and therefore they don't really empower people. They don't feel trusted, and they're afraid to lose control. And they might come back with, like you say, trust but verify, but usually trust but verify is usually all verify and no trust. (laughs) That the word trust but verify, the but negates everything in front of it. So it really means verify and they forgot the trust. Now, look, the idea of smart trust, extending smart trust with expectations and accountability, I think could be an appropriate form of trust and verify, where you're trying to make sure you're setting people up to win. They're ready for what you're giving them. You're not asking them to take on something they're not capable of. My wife had to have some medical surgery recently. My wife trusts me. I trust her. But when it came time to do the surgery, she didn't ask me to perform the surgery because <laughs> I'm not a doctor. She didn't trust me. I don't have the competence. I, that would be foolish to trust me. So you got to be smart about it. You're setting people up to win, but you're just trying to find the opportunities to extend trust to people as a way of unleashing their potential, their talent, their greatness, and to get better results and outcomes. So again, it always comes back to getting results in a way that grows people. So we still want to get the result. That is an end, but people also are an end. And trusting others helps bring both ends about getting results in a way that grows people. And it's a better way to lead. The data shows this, Mahan. As leaders, we overestimate how trusting we are by three times. (laughs) We think we're pretty trusting, but our people rate us about 300% less than what we think that we are. So my experience is this is the big opportunity to build more trust. A high trust culture is to become more trusting as leaders, as senior management one reason employees don't trust management is because management doesn't trust employees and the employees reciprocate the distrust right back at them. Right now with this pandemic and everything, people have had a great opportunity to extend trust deliberately to their people and to build more trust as people work from home, work remotely, work in a hybrid or from anywhere. Here's a great opportunity to show your people that you trust them and you, with expectations and accountability. So it's a smart trust. But when you give it, people receive it and they return it. There's a reciprocity of trust. Stephen, couldn't agree with you more. Vast majority of organizations could use granting more trust and being more trusting and stop with some of the excuses for why it doesn't work in their organization. And you made the point and it made me reflect on the fact that I had a very trusting boss And I know this wasn't unique to me. It was the same case with others that reported to him. I would bend over backwards to do whatever it took, never to betray his trust and to overperform the expectations. And if going back to the fundamental beliefs that you talk about, if you believe people have greatness in them, if you believe they have that goodness in them and want to step up, This just provides them the opportunity to do that. So I would urge people not to reflect on why we can't do it in our organization, but to reflect on how to 
And as you mentioned in your book, how to clarify the expectations, practice accountability, and do the kinds of things in the organization that enable a more trusting environment. That's beautiful. I love it, Mahan, because rather than focus on all the reasons why we can't trust our people or others, let's focus on all the reasons why we can and how we could become better at this. If you start with that mindset, you'll see possibilities you would never see otherwise. So I'm not Pollyannish on this. I recognize not everyone can be trusted and it wouldn't be smart to continue to extend trust to people who abuse and violate your trust time and time again. So that wouldn't be smart trust. But don't let the fact that you can't trust some affect how you see everyone. And too many organizations today have built their organization around the 5% they can't trust, not the 95% who they can. And they penalize the many because of the few with their policies and procedures and processes. They do it all in the name of got to keep control, but there's actually far more control in a high trust culture than there is in a rules-based culture. Because you can't come up with enough rules for people who you can't trust. But in a high trust culture, the culture itself will crowd out, weed out, starve out the offenders, the violators, because no one wants to lose that kind of trust. It's just a better approach to leadership to find the ways that we can extend more trust and get good at this. That's why there's more control with extending trust with an agreement in place of expectations and accountability, like my father with me at age seven, than there is with micromanaging the person hovering over. You might think you're in control, but you're really not because you haven't unleashed anyone and your ability to really leverage yourself and to get different results, outcomes, all the things that trusting does, like you just said, on of how you want to perform for that person and brings out your very best work. I bet that's true for all of our listeners. I also bet that in many cases, the trust-inspired leader that maybe you thought of, Mahan, or that our listeners thought of, someone in your life, in many cases, they might have been a trust-inspired leader operating in a command and control culture or world where they became a model of possibility. I've seen this happen. Even like you say, in financial services, highly regulated, a lot of compliance. I, I worked with the home um, mortgage company, Veterans United Home Loans. They're highly regulated. Everything in that industry screams distrust. You try to get a loan today. The paperwork is you know, voluminous, right? Because of some abuses of trust with the housing crisis a few years ago, Dodd-Frank to try to reestablish trust. So everything in the industry screams distrust to clients trying to get a loan. And so they're in that industry. They have to follow the same rules. And yet they are consistently on the hundred best companies to work for, of which trust is two thirds of the criteria. They extend trust to their people in smart ways. In spite of being in a, in a command and control industry, they are a trust and inspire company. They've learned how to navigate that and how to do it in a way that still has the compliance issues, but they're intentional, they're deliberate. Yes, they're swimming upstream, but they're doing it and excelling at it. And they're a magnet for people and for talent that want to be part of that kind of culture in that industry. So we need models that can become mentors. So you can do it even in your environment. If you have a command and control boss, show them what a trust-inspired leader looks like. And, and you become a model of getting results in a way that grows the people and show them there's a better way to do this. So that's the idea. 
That is a beautiful way of putting it, Stephen. And I know you also mentioned it in the book, whether it is as a coach, as a teacher, with your family, with the people around you, you have the choice to make a difference. I also had a, a great conversation with David Marquet, who was a captain of a nuclear submarine. And the Navy structure was command and control, but he turned his submarine around by trusting and changing his leadership approach. So we all can impact those around us. We don't necessarily need to be Satya Nadella, who I refer to often, and I know gave your book glowing reviews. We don't need to be CEO of a major company to change the culture. We can change the culture of the small unit or group just around us. Absolutely. And that's why this is so empowering to everyone. The key to becoming a trust-inspired leader is to first become a trust-inspired person. So you can do it in your home. You can do it as a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a godparent. You could do it as a neighbor, as a friend. You could do it as a coach, either an actual athletic coach or as an as a exec, executive coach or a partnering coach. A lot of work that you do, you could do it in all kinds of different situations because leadership is a choice, not a position. We can all lead. And then if you're in an organization, if you're a member of a team, you could do it on your team and let it ripple out from there. And so, yes, we're all inspired by Asacha Nadella because he did all three of these stewardships. He modeled, he trusted, and he inspired. And he revitalized Microsoft. He unleashed the greatness inside of that organization. And today they're very relevant. They're winning in the workplace, winning in the marketplace. And through leadership style or through what Cheryl Batchelder did at Popeyes, completely turned them around. She modeled, she trusted, she inspired. So it's nice when it's done at the CEO level. We like that. And we're in favor of that. But more often or not, it's done at the unit level, at the team level, at the department level, wherever people are at, or even at the home level, becoming a trust-inspired parent and letting this ripple out from there, what this does. That's the power of principles. They apply everywhere and anywhere. And it's also the power of inside out, is you always are looking in the mirror and rippling out from wherever you're standing. And it's great if you're the CEO, and it's great if you're a member of a team. I can start there. I'm a parent in a home. I can start there and be a trusted, inspired parent, not a my way or the highway parent, and, and model trust and inspire. So wherever you're at, and, and that's the idea, it's learnable. Starts with the mindset, the fundamental beliefs, the paradigm, and then moves to the stewardships. That's the actions, modeling, trusting, inspiring. That's simple. But it's learnable, it's doable. We can get good at all three of those stewardships. And this is a better way to lead in our world today. And we need this. And I'm speaking to the trust and inspire leaders that can help bring about a renaissance of both trust and inspiration that we need so desperately in our world today. We need it in our organizations, in our communities, in our families which is why I love Trust and Inspire, how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. In addition to your own book, Stephen, are there any leadership resources you typically find yourself recommending to others? Well, 
yes, of course, my own. <laughs> and But my father's, the seven habits of highly effective people remains just so foundational. I find myself recommending a lot of other good work out there from, you know, Jim Collins and his work to the Vital Learning Organization and their great work on crucial conversations and Kim Scott and her work on fierce conversations and other things. A lot of great work to Liz Wiseman, her work on multipliers and impact players to Whitney Johnson, her work on disrupting yourself and on smart growth. There's many good thinkers, practitioners that are moving the work along that are helping create trust-inspired leaders and organizations through the work that they're doing. And I think it's meaningful. I love what you're doing, Mahan. In fact, your tagline is unleashing your team's potential. That's trust and inspire because the subtitle of trust and inspire is how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. That greatness is their potential. And so you're saying that's what you're about, unleashing your team's potential. So you're in this work too. You're moving people along as this whole partnering leadership is partnering. That's a trust and inspire approach and leadership. This is the kind of leadership that we need. So there's a lot of people that are co-catalysts with me and many others to help bring about really a renaissance of trust, a renaissance of inspiration. We're dangerously low in both of those in our world, in our communities, in our organizations. We need it. And rather than waiting for the CEOs everywhere to provide it, we'd like that. And there are some out there like Satya and Eric Yuan of Zoom and Carol Batchelder and Lieutenant Colonel Dorothy Hogg, you know, and others. You mentioned David Marquet. He's amazing. And we can become that in our circle of influence, wherever it might be, and ripple out from there. If all our listeners did was apply this in their personal life, in their homes, in their communities, that would be extraordinary. And I think you could also apply it to your life. So here's my challenge to all our listeners, to all of us. Just like someone has been a trust-inspired leader in our life, and maybe it's more than one, it could be multiple people. I asked you to all kind of think about someone who's done that for you, and you thought about someone for you, Mahan. I would ask each of us, for whom could we become that kind of person, that kind of leader? And while we could do it generically and say that I'm going to become a trusted fire leader, I invite each person, each of our listeners, think of one person, one relationship that you would like to improve, have a profound impact on that person, that relationship by becoming a trust and inspire person for that individual you just identified. And again, it could be personal, could be for professional and try it. If you can do it with one, you can do it with another. And so try that test as an invitation to all of us to become that person for another. I love that. I love the modeling of Trust and Inspire that you've done, Stephen. For the audience to find out more about Trust and Inspire, the book, or find out more about you and your content, where would you recommend for them to go? Trustandinspire.com. And there's some tools, resources available. Also, the books anywhere in the bookstores and Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, of course. And then you can follow me on Twitter, on Instagram. It's at Stephen M. R. Covey on LinkedIn, on Facebook as well. 
And I'd love you to follow and be part of this conversation and part of being a co-catalyst with me, with you, Mahan, and with many, many others in helping to bring about this renaissance of trust and inspiration that we need in our world. So love to have you be part of this journey. We are going to do that together. And I love a quote you have from uh, Gandhi in your book, the difference between what we are doing and what we are capable of doing would solve most of the world's problems. So I, I appreciate you, Stephen M. R. Covey, for modeling trust and inspire and for guiding all of us to have an impact on a person, on a small team, or on our organization, so we can truly unleash greatness in others. Thank you so much for joining this conversation, Stephen M. R. Covey. Thank you, Mahan, and thank you for being a trust and inspire leader. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.